The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. And if I left something out, please forgive me. Glenn Lowry here at The Glenn Show. I'm with John McWhorter. He teaches at Columbia University. I teach at Brown University. We're the Black guys. And uh, we talk every other week. And our special guest this week is Greg Thomas. Uh, Greg is uh, co-founder of the Jazz Leadership Project and is a senior fellow at the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And he and I have uh, talked before here at the Glenn Show about this or that. Uh, and uh, Greg is the author of an essay published at the Journal of Free Black Thought uh, called Deracialization Now. Uh, so, Greg, what's up, man? All right. Thanks for inviting me on again, this time with John. It's great to meet you, John, and I love your poster. You too, Greg. I love your Thank poster you. in the back. That that signifies something I resonate with very strongly, music. You music. know, I've had, I've had this. This is my fourth copy of this. I've had it since childhood, and every time it wears out, I get a new one. I like it, too. It's pretty. And it teaches okay, people. Greg, I just want you to introduce yourself again to the audience. Your Jazz Leadership Project, what's that? Institute for Cultural Evolution, what's that? And what do you mean deracialization now to the black guys? What's that about? Leadership Project is an organization devoted to leadership and team development through the principles and practices of jazz. The Institute for Cultural Evolution uh, is a think tank that's based on uh, development, uh, development of our consciousness, development of our culture, so that we can improve and increase the values that we hold uh, as, as Americans and beyond. And deracialization now, well, that was the title that uh, they chose at the Journal of uh, Free Black Thought. Um, it actually was published originally at the Developmentalist, which is the site for the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And I would probably now have a subtitle because though I'm making a strong case for deracialization now, I end the essay by saying that we need to scaffold it, that it's really difficult to pull the rug right from under everything that we've been dealing with the race so that we should be strategic about it and talk about ways we can actually slowly but surely move towards what you call transracial humanism. Glenn? What are... What are the principles of jazz? I, I think I know a little bit about the practice. Hmm. Well, the principles that we focus on at JLP, Jazz Leadership Project, are four. Um, the first two are for the individual. The next two are dealing with more of a group dynamic. So we start with individual excellence. And you'll see this has carryover socially, politically, but we're focusing on the music and businesses. Individual excellence. So you as an individual leader, musician, or citizen, you start with what you need to be the best you can be. Then we have 
uh, antagonistic cooperation, which is an orientation towards challenge, uh, conflict and competition that says, look, it's gonna be there. How do you look at challenge, conflict and competition, not as negatives, but as ways for you to grow and learn? So that's the individual. Then the next two principles are shared leadership. We look at the, each person has the potential to be a leader in his or her own right. Like on the bandstand, though you may have a, a named nominal leader, each person on their instrument is a leader in what they do, but you share that leadership. And the last is what we call um, an ensemble mindset. So this is where everything is flowing, grooving, swinging, and everyone is creating um, where the sum is more than the parts, where it's a, a larger dynamic that's created by the group interaction and collaboration. I mean, does that sound like jazz or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, if you had asked me, what are the principles of jazz? I'm not sure I would have come up with that list, but ex post facto, I, I accept that list yeah, and it's consistent with my experience yeah. of jazz music. Uh, okay. All right. John, you're the music man. What do you make of that? Oh, I, I, I get the analogy. It's, it, it, it's interesting. I, um, I like the idea that everybody should be um, in their pitching and that you do it with what you have to bring and that what you produce is something as precious and special but approachable as jazz. Yeah, I, I, I get that completely. I mean, you know, and jazz means a lot of things to a lot of people at this point. I mean, you've got, got Louis Armstrong, and then you've got that guy who was playing in the basement with an electric guitar last night. So you've got a hundred years. So it can mean all sorts of things to all sorts of people, which I think is good. And um, no, I completely, I get the analogy, but as you can tell, I'm saying all these things, but I'm waiting to see how this ties into this, this deracialization because on that, um, I don't have any glib thoughts, but I, I just want to hear more from you, Greg. I mean, we can't assume that everyone here has, who's looking has, has, has seen the essay, uh, and I'd be glad to go into it in detail, but I'm wondering, because with you, Glenn, you actually commented on Twitter. And I so appreciated that because it's ostensibly a critique of your perspective and a friend of yours, uh, Clifton Roscoe, and a piece that he wrote um, dealing with race and that it's here to stay, you know, it's like a, having a virus, you gotta just live with it. And I, you know, I, I, I disagreed with that. Uh, but you said, look, this is something worth reading, it's passionate, it's, you know. So I'm kind of wondering what you think, John, of it and we can kick it back and forth just based on your general impression of it. Well, before John answers, I, I do want you, Greg, to stall out the argument a little bit because not everybody listening will have read it. Um, I want to just say, and maybe this primes the pump, so I think about jazz as America's great contribution to contemporary music. And I think about jazz as an expression of Black culture not exclusively, but to a very great degree. I mean, you know, it, it is a music which has been infused with the spirit and the experience, the pathos and the genius of many musicians and composers uh, 
a great number of whom had been African-Americans. I, I, I take a kind of almost racial pride in the greatness of jazz music. And I somehow think you think that's wrong. Well, and, now you uh, now you know that's not true because we both <laughs> don't even try that. I said prime the pump. I said prime the pump. Okay, because you and I were both friends with Stanley Crouch, and and we were, you know, and 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 Stanley and I are are part of a a lineage of thought derived from Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray, largely uh, that you know has a more of a nuanced perspective on the origins of jazz. Yes. Black Americans, and you said black. I say black Americans as an ethnic and cultural identifier within an American context. So I'm trying to separate race and culture in that way, though I'm using the term black, I, I know, but that's one of the, the principles of the piece or the, or the points I make in the piece, that we do not have to always conflate race with culture, race with ancestry, heritage, ethnicity, et cetera, that we can analytically separate those things so that we can look at them, you know, each as objects unto themselves. So that's that's one of my key points. So I would say that Black Americans definitely uh, created the blues. The blues is the foundation of jazz and all of American music. Yes. But when you create an art form, it doesn't become the the copyrighted possession of those who created it, it becomes a gift to the world, right? So others can and did and do identify with blues and jazz, and it becomes a part of their identity and what they gravitate to. And this is not true just of blues and jazz, it's rock and roll, all these, because that's the way culture actually works. So that's one of my key, key distinctions. Well, Greg, my question would just be at the outset, um, and I don't mean this as a, as a challenge, but what do we gain from that separation beyond a very interesting intellectual concept? I, I get it, and you're right. The race and the culture are not the same thing. But what do we gain by stressing that intellectual fact? Okay, well, I think we gain a whole lot. I think that if we just look through a racial lens, and now I'll go into some of the specifics of the thesis of the essay. Um, if we look at what is called racialization, racialization is the process through which races are created, where you have this hierarchical classification based on phenotypic characteristics and you have evaluations and you have assumptions and you have stereotypes based on those classifications and taxonomies. And then you have differential results based on those differentiations based on racialization and a whole worldview that's based on race, a racial worldview where you see things through the lens of race and you become, you're in a racial world and you become a racial agent in the world. Whereas if you look at through the lens of culture, culture is not just race, you've already admitted that. And if we can see ourselves as cultural agents, then we, we perceive ourselves and we, we have a different perspective on our everyday existence. And it's not just intellectual, it's actually very, very grounded in what we do. We can look at look, the, the three of us, okay. 
when others look at us, they're going to put us racially in the same category. No question. But culturally, I mean, we are of different generations, or at least John and I are a slightly different generation than you, Glenn, because you're older than us, and John and I happen to be contemporaries. We're, we come from different places, and based on the region we come from, that will influence our cultural inheritance. And, and this is the key thing. The thing about culture, American culture in particular, when you don't look at it through the lens of race, you see all the intermixtures and interminglings, the creolization that is a part of what culture is. So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's an aesthetic beauty to it. It's more precise in terms of human actuality than race, which is a fiction. In biological yes. terms, particularly. Yeah, but okay. I want to bring this down onto the cold, hard ground. Okay. Use something, use something real. The audience seems to like this, and I, I would like it from the other end. I have um, biracial daughters. They are seven and ten. Of late, I'm hearing from gentle, concerned people, both white and black, that I need to pay more attention to developing their racial identity because they are half white and they're half black and they're being raised in a kind of mongrelized, upper-middle-class white world where, frankly, at their ages, color doesn't matter at all. There are some people who are worried that maybe I need to take the girls to Jack and Jill, something like that. They need to, they need to have a, a, a black identity. And the I know just a person, John, my, my daughter Lisa is a big Jack and Jill operative. So really? if you need to get hooked up, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm not remotely close to the idea. I've been to so many botillions, <laughs> I couldn't even begin to count. <laughs> it's a wonderful tradition. But everybody is thinking, well, they have to realize how people are going to see them. And, um, and you can imagine what them look like. They're kind of these little pecan-colored people. But, you know, we have to acknowledge that they're going to be seen as Black American people and discriminated against. And so what a lot of people would say to you is that we can't think about this too hard because the cultural analysis is nice, but my daughters are somehow misbegotten or they're in danger if they don't identify strongly enough with the culture. Where do we put that? That's great. Great example. Uh, my, my daughter happens to be in her, her mid-20s. Uh, and she went through different developmental challenges based on this. But I'll, let's just focus mm -hmm. on your seven and 10 year old. Um, in 1973 at Harvard, there was a um, conference on Elaine Locke. Ralph Ellison, Harold Cruz, Albert Murray, um, and another gentleman who's a historian, I can't remember his name, he's one of the founders of Black Studies at Harvard. And one of the things that Ellison said at that, on that occasion is that, look, you white students need to realize you part black and you black students need to realize you part white. I mean, in a very just straight up down to earth way. And that's cultural because there's all these cross influences, but you're talking about literally, biologically, they are mixed. And what I would say is teach them that they're Omni-American. Omni-American is an identity as the title of Albert Murray's first book that it recognizes our differences, but also what we hold in common. So an omni-American identity says that we can have these ethnic differentiations, these idiomatic variations, 
you know, these different histories, what you talk about uh, often is the black church, Glenn. I grew up in the black church too. Um, these are institutional uh, um, carryovers of our history, that certain values are a part of them, all of that stuff. So that's fine. It's not an either or proposition. One of the things about jazz, and this is through drama and comedy, where they talk about yes and. It ain't either or, it's yes and. You can have both a Black American ethnic and cultural identity and a heritage that you identify with and take value from, and you can have a larger American identity as well as a larger global identity, which is more cosmopolitan. These are not, again, when you look through the lens of culture, these are not conflictual things. But getting folks to go from race to culture is not that is not is not that easy. But it, it well, no, I, I don't understand. I'm something I'm missing. Then why the D racialization? I mean. Uh, I let, let's just say we got a lot of things going on at the same time. Why do I have to D anything? But hold on, let me let me finish yeah, this, please. So the great philosopher Leo Strauss, in a lecture at Hillel at the University of Chicago in 1963, uh, asked the question, "Why do we remain Jews?" Mm. And he gives an answer. One answer is they won't let us not be Jews. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is, you try to convert, they still dig you out and, and they burn you in the oven. Mm-hmm. But the other answer was, to do anything else would be to dishonor our fathers. We're being, we're hewing to a tradition. So I want to take your uh, in a hurry passion about deracialization, which I don't see the imperative for, and apply it to the Jews. Why do they? Why should they remain Jews? Why wouldn't the same argument apply to any? And I don't just mean the Jews. That's true. Why wouldn't it apply to the Armenians? Why wouldn't it apply to the Irish and uh, Northern Ireland? Why doesn't everybody who's got a group, who's got an identity, who calls himself a thing, get over it? Why is it that the blacks have to be the subject? America's got a problem, for sure. Slavery and the Civil War and all of that are a problem. Blacks are going to solve the problem by forgetting who their fathers were? I think you're doing the same conflation, Glenn. You're doing the same conflation. I mean, heritage is not the same thing as race. Now, look, I understand. But answer my question. That if it applies to blacks, it applies across the board. But you, you're busy telling blacks to stop being black. No. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm being pejorative. I'm, I'm intentionally being provocative. No, I, I apologize. Cool. I, I know that's not what you're saying, everybody. No, I know that's not what that's you're saying. That's cool. I like antagonistic cooperation, man. That's cool. <laughs> Yeah, okay, that's so what you call it, antagonistic. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, okay, first of all, when you're talking about a Jewish heritage, you're talking about a 2,000-year-old heritage. It was only with the advent of race, racialization, and a racial worldview that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis used the same type of white supremacist ideology, but applied it to a German mode and applied it to the Jews where they became a race. Race has only been around as a concept for about 400 years or so. Matter of fact, it's less. So when I say deracialization, I'm not saying deculturalization. I'm not saying de-ancestry, de-heritage. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying that holding on to this concept of race, 
the process of racialization, a way of seeing the world through the lens of race has been destructive, remains destructive. And if we make some of these analytic, if we, to use uh, what the what they say in, in phenomenology, uh, what's Herzl, um, uh, if you bracket race from those things, at least temporarily, and look at them differently, that you can still maintain all the good stuff that you talk about from the culture and the heritage and the ancestry, and not forget without holding onto a racial concept. So the question becomes, I said, okay, they chose the title deracialization now. Yes, there's an urgency. But I started by saying, we have to scaffold it. We're gonna have to do this in stages. That's the reality. So my question is, what would it take for us to begin scaffolding, to move in the direction of that transracial humanism that I think both of you agree is a direction that we should be moving in? And Greg, here's, here's the thing. My daughters are growing up in the 2020s. They're growing up in an environment in which if there's any racism, it is so infinitesimal that it doesn't merit slightest discussion. And I get the feeling, it's gonna be interesting when they look back on this in 15 years, but I get the feeling that they might grow up not thinking of themselves precisely as black. They might think of it as an intellectual concept, but I think they think of themselves as mutts especially because with their generation and in my neighborhood, mutts are the default. White people are rare. Blonde hair is rare. They, they don't rule except, you know, economically. But they live in a new America. Now, I know that for a great many people, including very kind and sensitive people, the idea that they would grow up thinking that way is revolting, utterly nauseating. There would be, you know, white people who listen to NPR. There are listening to me saying this and shaking their heads and thinking, this is where I lose McWhorter. You know, how dare they not think of themselves as black? You're saying that they that at best they'd be a little hasty if in 10 years a black girl comes up to them and says, do you think you're black? And they say, well, frankly, no, I'm just me. And we've all known black people like that who were a little previous. And I'm sure that all three of us have thought of people like that. I knew a couple of them in college. It's too early. Yes, you are black. You know, what, what's wrong with you? And yes, everybody, even me, thought that way. So you're saying scaffolding, but how fast? Like, what about if one of my daughters, and I can tell which one of them it's going to be, is going to say in 2032, you know, I'm not black. What, what, what do we do? Yeah, that is, it's, a, it's a tough conundrum. I, I admit it. It's a very tough conundrum. I would say that because of your work, John, see, that, that's why knowing someone's work is so important. At some point, your daughters are going to be intellectually able and curious enough to read Talking Black, Talking Back, Talking Black. To mm -hmm. me, your book is a profoundly uh, uh, superb defense of, again, Black American culture through language. We could say Afro-American, we could say Negro-American. I mean, we use these different terms. We've been battling over that for 150 years. And when they read that, they will realize that's a part of their heritage, okay? So as Black Americans, we are not just Black. Africa is a part of our heritage. Europe is a part of our heritage. It's a mixture, it's a composite. That's the thing. So they are both culturally and biologically actual mixtures. Now, of course, I'm not talking about race transmitted through 
through blood. Oh my God, that's really old school. But I'm saying that the mixtures are fine now. There are certain things that Glenn values in terms of like the Black American religious tradition. I grew up on my mother's side, it was Pentecostal. On my dad's side, it was African Methodist Episcopal. So I have both of those, you know, tributaries in my own heritage. My daughter, Kaya, we took her to church, but we didn't take her to church religiously like I did. So she has the experience, but she doesn't have as much of an identification with that part of her heritage. That's going to happen, but she still can appreciate it, you know? So, I mean, it's a question of what you expose them to, John. And I, you know, look at the music. You got those musical symbols in the back. You're not going to just expose them to, I mean, if you expose them to the Broadway music that you love and then show them where in hip hop culture, they use aspects from the jazz tradition in terms of certain beats, certain lyrics, certain this and that. And you make the connection to them from, from, from Broadway and, and, the, and the American songbook to jazz to hip hop. So in other words, you can help them make certain cultural connections. They're getting it. They're getting it, yeah. Uh, that right, part. right. Yeah. So, so yeah. and what they're not getting is a narrative of victimization. That's what they're not getting. And that is Towards the problem that the aspect of so-called Black identity that is primarily or even exclusively focused on victimization and oppression as opposed to the part of the Black American tradition that's about resilience, that's about overcoming, that's about... Hold on, Greg, I can't, I, I can't let you do this. I can't let you do this. I'm as much against victimization as anybody, okay? The race narrative, I'm Black. I think of myself as Black. I identify as Black. And the victimization posture are completely distinct things. I can be worshiping Black excellence, Black achievement, Black heroes. I can have a narrative of Black uh, responsibility, of, of, of Black self-determination. Yes. That's not, that doesn't require me to think of myself as a victim. So that's a cheap shot. Okay. Now, it's very interesting that you say that. I appreciate you saying that because some of the people who look like... No, no, no. Wakanda. Wakanda forever. Ryan Coogler. Right. The whole cultural apparatus mm -hmm. of, uh, uh, you know, I mean, name the TV shows, uh, name the playwrights, name the, the fiction writers, uh, Underground Railroad, name the uh, Tony Morrison, name the et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they mine the experience of Black people. They envision the future of Black people. To hang this uh, backward political posture, we're victims, or this reductive biological posture, race as an essence, around people who simply want to preserve and carry forward to the future a set of self-defining narratives built around the experience of their Black ancestors yes. is to engage in a sleight of hand. Now, I want you to tell me why I should not teach my daughter or my son to adopt a kid, adopt homeless kids, kids who don't have parents, adopt, and then make sure they adopt black kids because there are too many black kids who go without parents. Why shouldn't we teach them when they are engaged in their tithing and their generosity and their gift giving to give to work on the ground in black communities? 
taking care of black ex-convicts, taking care of black people who need help. In other words, why the narrative of who I am in the world, just like the Jews, who wouldn't be the Jews if they had listened to people mouthing the kind of arguments that you are advancing now, get over it, grow out of it, don't cling to it. They're Jews today because their forefathers nurtured Jewishness. Why can't I nurture a cultural, not a biologically essential blackness, and buy the future for my people in a more positive way? That, that's what Clifton Roscoe is saying. He's not saying that, um, Clifton Roscoe, by the way, is a correspondent at uh, glennlowry.substack who contributes pieces from time to time on race and is a very thoughtful uh, and well-informed individual. Um, he, he's not trying to embrace any kind of racial essentialism. He's just trying to be practical about how we move the ball forward. I hear you, and I appreciate the passion. I feel it. And, and I would say that and I'm going to lean on a, a philosophical concept by Kwame Anthony Appiah, and Danielle Allen extends and elaborates, that we can be rooted cosmopolitans. We could be rooted... In, uh, in traditions and in tradition, and we can be cosmopolitan at the same time. Look, the work that Robert Woodson does, that 10% of the proceeds of your very podcast goes to, that's why, and look, I don't have to say this because it probably is going to have people look at me askance, but I don't care. I signed that letter that was in support of Clarence Thomas against particularly white liberals who were calling him out of his name, racist names. I signed it, even though there were certain parts of the letter that I was like, eh, I don't really agree with this. Why? Because you and Robert Woodson asked me to. At first, when Charles Love did, and I respect Charles, don't get me wrong, he asked me, and I was like, mm, I don't know, man. Once Robert Woodson himself reached out, that was it. Because I respect the work that he does in the community on the ground. And there are others. Reconstruction.us is an education organization. That is a- That's Roland Fryer. That's right. And Kaya Roland Fryer. That's right. And Kaya yeah, Kaya. So it's an educational project that's about focusing on our history and positive narratives. You have the Be Me community, Trabion Shorters, that's talking about asset framing, identifying us in terms of our aspirations as opposed to a liability narrative. So you're right. I didn't, I didn't intend to slander an entire uh, narrative of Black excellence and Black cultural development with the... I'm saying that that, that is particularly, and let's, let's face it, on the left particularly on the left, a victimhood narrative that is predominating, okay? Not exclusively there. So that's what I was talking about. But you're right. You don't have to have those things. Now, let me just say this. We have been victimized as Black Americans. Obviously, we went through enslavement and Jim Crow. Yes. The question is, do you maintain a victim identity as your posture in the world, as the basis for your engagement of the world. And I think the three of us would agree, would agree no, that we don't have sure. to and we shouldn't. Yeah. What do you think, John? I, I completely get it. Um, 
I'm just, I'm sitting here saddened because as we've talked about too many times before, Greg, you're talking about stop focusing on the victimhood narrative, but for so many people, so many of us and so many of our quote unquote allies, all they can hear is what about the cops? And, you know, they say, you know, how can you say don't stress victimhood when we can't walk outside of our house without, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a narrative. And I, I quite baldly, it's exaggerated. It's not that terrible things don't happen, but the idea that that defines, I imagine that as you get older, you're supposed to be less subject to it, um, if I may, Glenn. But I said, Greg, you and me probably have about 10 years where we're still subject to it, apparently. That is a defining aspect of our lives, that we walk through a park and we get bopped over the head by a cop because we had something hanging out of our pocket. It's vastly exaggerated. But for many people, that's the defining experience of being black in America. Well, that's because that? I, th- I think that's because of the driving wild black experience. I, I think mm-hmm. I think that that is it. Now, it, it so happens that it's only recently, believe it or not, that I have had my first car. Believe it or not, I, I live. <laughs> I, I know. Believe he lives in New York, huh? right? I, in New York, I say you live in New York, right? You know, <laughs> you so, don't have to have. Well, I, I, yeah, I get it. Once I moved to Connecticut. I had to get a car, okay? You need a car. Yeah, Yeah. I'm in Connecticut now. So I think the driving while black experience of being stopped, if you're going through a neighborhood where it's like, oh, what are you doing here? Are you driving nice? I think that dynamic and the actual history of horrible treatment in, in municipalities all across this nation of people who are racialized as black, I mean, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, oh my God, before they had cameras? I mean, that's a very real part of, of the of the memory, of the, like the cultural memory. So yeah. Uh, Craig, if I may, yeah. I grew up in Philadelphia under Frank Rizzo, okay. who was just an avowed bigot, yeah. and the cops were nakedly racist against black people to the point that even essentially suburban little middle-class me knew. You know, it's just, it wasn't anything I experienced, but right. you knew about Rizzo. But you're talking about the cultural memory. I genuinely am not, am not sure what that means because <laughs> cops like him, police uh, mayors like him, are now all but non-existent. Those people are all retired or, or dead. And if we're talking about the memory, does somebody 17 really remember that? Or is it that a certain meme is passed down that you, you, you hate on the cops and you think of being black as being victimized by the cops, even if you're no longer having direct experiences that white people aren't having too? It's just, what does cultural memory mean? So let me modify that. You're you're right. Let let me modify that. Let's say you're talking about uh, teenagers, black teenagers, growing up in New York during the Giuliani to Bloomberg years. The stop and frisk. The stop and frisk them. That was like, that, that was a heavy Wait, so that's that a more recent awesome. memory. Yeah, you know that's true. So that's yeah, true. and I was really against that because of that. Right. Because yeah, that just poisoned yeah. that poisoned the well. Yeah, it's not a memory; it happened exactly. And so yeah, I got to ask you something, Greg. Sure, it's not jazz; it's literature. Yes, sir. James Baldwin. You mentioned Murray. You mentioned Ellison. Jimmy Baldwin. And I'm contrasting Jimmy Baldwin of, let's say, everybody's protest novel early in his career where he's criticizing Richard Wright and he doesn't like the bigger Thomas character. 
And why doesn't he like Bigger Thomas? Because he is defined by the constraints, by his victimization, and loses track of his humanity. This is how I understand Baldwin's insight. But by the time we get, you know, to the 1980s, we got a different Jimmy Baldwin. Earlier than that. Yeah, earlier than that. That is so interesting that you... <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting that er those early essays were things that, uh, you know, uh, Ralph Ellison and, and, and Albert Murray, that was kind of their vein. And then during the movement itself, during the civil rights movement, being caught up in that, he ended up, you know, shifting. And in the Omni-Americans, which I mentioned earlier, there's an essay where Murray talks about Baldwin and Richard Wright in a very critical fashion. In fact, it's very interesting that Murray and Baldwin were together in Paris in the 1950s. Albert Murray taught James Baldwin how to swim. So there's some, there's, yeah, there's some ties there. And um, so I would say that uh, Jimmy Baldwin is one of our great um, essayists, uh, one of our great protest writers. And he was as aware of the power of literature as anybody else. But um, let's just say that towards the end, he emphasized more, I think, politics and the continued atrocities happening to, to Black folks. It's not like it didn't happen. You know, he focused on, you know, the burning of churches, you know, that, that happened in, in, in the South and that type of thing. So... Um, I respect Baldwin a lot, um, but Ellison and Murray are still my my, my main cats. Well, Bald Baldwin is is interesting, and I I lionize him. Um, I you know down at his feet, whichever era you're in. But you know, all of us have our our you know our hills and our valleys, and I think that Baldwin liked to be liked. You know, don't don't we all? And I think he got really spooked when people like Eldridge Cleaver didn't like him. Yeah, you, he ran afoul yeah. Yeah, of the late 60s. And I'm not saying he was shallow, but you start seeing him then trying to show that he really is one of, one of the gang. And the nature of the gang had changed, whereas Ellison and Murray weren't going to have any of that. And you could even, you could make a critique that, you know, Ellison instead is sitting in the Century Club in New York City. And I'm not being loved out because now I'm in it. I'm <laughs> in the same chairs. But he was there and he just kind of, hurled into his shell after a while. Whereas in a way, Baldwin was more responsive to the tone of the times. But, you know, it, it created some weird changes, I think, in both of them, actually. Ellison could seem a little intolerant after a while. You know, he's watching, you know, black people in 1970 in the new kind of clothes strutting down the street, and he doesn't understand. Whereas Baldwin all of a sudden got his fist up in the air and saying some things I don't think he would have said in 1952. Yeah, people change. As Absolutely, but that's where Stanley Crouch comes in, because Stanley was so powerful in his critique of the Black Power Movement and the Black Arts Movement, in part because of that kind of thing, because of the the um, extremes of the of that particular narrative, and you know someone like Eldridge Cleaver, you know, look. <laughs> I'm sorry, he couldn't tie Baldwin's shoes as a writer. Really? I mean, so, no. you know, so, yeah. But, but when you're in the midst of a, a really heavy political movement and period and that transition, I mean, Black folks have been preparing for that moment 
since the 19th century. So it was finally here. And I think there's probably some sociological work that shows it. When you have these movements, that there's going to be some that really go to the edge of radicalism. You know, you have the kind of spectrum. And it, that happened not just in terms of black politics, that happened in terms of left politics, like really extremist kind of things. And then you have these responses, political responses, right and left. You know, I, I'm a radical moderate, by the way, and we could talk about that another time. That's my self-declared mm -hmm. political stance. I'm a radical mm -hmm. as far as race and racialization, but I'm a moderate mm -hmm. so that I try to look at both sides, both ideological mm -hmm. sides, and decide where I stand in a particular election. Sometimes I'm, mm -hmm. I'm an entrepreneur. So as far as business and entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. I'm more on the right. Mm -hmm. When it comes to certain other issues, I'm, I'm more on the left. I want to really expand the range of opportunities Oh, right. The range of opportunities that that not that conservatives don't, but conservatives want to make sure that certain standards are maintained. And I, I can respect that. Right. That's a that's a fundamental position of conservatives and liberals want to and progressives want to expand the uh, range of rights and and opportunities to more people. I'm not saying that right doesn't. I'm just saying that that's the more of an emphasis of the left. So I can I can understand both sides. And that's more of a what I would call an integral perspective where you can look at these different ideologies and not necessarily identify so much with one over the other that you can't understand one, what's in common between them. And also in terms of, this is what we talked about last time, like a traditional perspective where the black church, a more modernist perspective, which is a more about the individual rights and a postmodern perspective that's critiquing modernity, but is really trying to bring in others who have been traditionally left out. I can understand all of those and I don't have to pit one against the other, but that's what happens in a, in a, in a, in a society in which our media Social media and mainstream media is based on conflict. It's, 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 you know, that's what it's driven by your limbic system, limbic hijack. That's what it's based on. So, yeah. Uh, Greg, let, let me do this because we're running out of time and, and I want to put something else on the table. You're talking not only to black people, but you are talking to black people, especially at the Journal of Free Black Thought. When you say deracialization now, you're talking to black people. Consider this yeah. that. The problem is white people, not, not just any white person, the ones who run the book publishing houses and the magazines and the st movie studios and the foundations, the ones who make people like ta Coates into a household name, uh, the, the ones who Tom Wolfe was talking about when he wrote Radical Chic back in the day, the ones who hold the cocktail parties and who go all a quiver at the Guggenheim Museum whenever somebody says, oh, they might be racist, they might be racist. The, the ones who decide who gets to be the new president of Harvard University and who gets to, et cetera, mm. okay? The, the, the ones who are running the Democratic Party, which depends on driving people to the polls based on the racial narrative that you reject. When you address yourself, to that issue. It's white people that need to be uh, convinced of deracialized now, not black people. Powerful, culturally influential, left of center, uh, virtue signaling white people. 
I think it's um, that was good, Glenn. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, that question. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> he endorsed the question. What'd you say? What'd you say? I say John endorses the question. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm sorry. I'm not going to let white folks on the right off the hook. I'm not doing that. I want them to deracialize. Okay, I want them to deracialize too. But Fair enough. if you're talking about elite white folks, right, who made Ta-Nehisi Coates a, a, a household name, who's made Ibram X. Kendi, though the popularity of his book at the time, it wasn't just the elites that had people buying the book once George Floyd was killed, but they honor and award them. And that is a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. But see, the thing is, I'm sorry, when you mentioned the term like self-determination, I myself am not going to look at myself through their eyes. I think we need a critical mass, a tipping point of us who are willing to be independent. That's how I look at you guys. I mean, I know that, John, you say, yeah, you're more on the left. You know what I mean? So I, I would say I call you center left and I call you center right, Glenn. So I really think that one of the reasons that you all have uh, valence in the culture is that there's a middle place that together you occupy. It's not just because you're the black guys that, you know, blogging his TV. Ideologically, there's a middle place that you all that is not really represented. So I just wanted to state that. So, yeah, that's a problem. There's a, there's a scholar at Columbia University, I can't think of his name, but who talks about these white elites on the left and how they, you know, are positing positions that about and for black people that they wouldn't posit for themselves or their children. You know, that scholar isn't me well, that, or Mark Lilla. Oh well, <laughs> you're not white, are you? <laughs> no. Oh, you said a white, a white star. I think of Mark Lilla once in years. Oh man, he's one, John. Yeah, you know, but there's a, and I'm and I'm. I think he's mixed. You know, or maybe he didn't say white. Maybe that's just. Yeah, I didn't say. I didn't say <laughs> white. Heard, I didn't say scholar. Yeah. I hope I didn't say white because I don't think he's white. I just can't remember his name at the moment. But yes, that is an issue. That that is a problem. But look, you know, for their own reasons, you know what I mean. And and we can be cynical about it. I mean, I think you can be cynical both ways. But the racial narrative ultimately is destructive. But if you make that, and I'm going to probably close with this, that race-culture distinction, you can still have what Robert Woodson does, what Travion Shorters does at the Be Me community, that what Reconstruction.us does, and still have a cultural narrative that is supportive of the heritage and the history and the overcoming spirit and of course the legacy of jazz, you know what I mean? And not fall into those narratives that some of those people want to, for whatever their various reasons, and probably that's another topic for discussion on another episode, why they want to do that. Um, but yeah, they do need to deracialize too. I, I'm not gonna, yes, to answer your question, damn right, they need to deracialize too. <laughs> Much more ground to cover with Greg Thomas. You have to come back, Greg, and we carry on the conversation. And I appreciate your forbearance. Uh, sometimes my passion gets out of control. I like you. I like you a lot, man. I don't want anybody to get the other uh, wrong impression about that. Oh, not at so, all, man. No, 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 no. You look, you bring on some everybody on your show. 
you debate Marxist, you know, I mean, how far, how far left and progressive you have to get, but you have them on your show, you know? So um, I, I appreciate you, your passion. And as I said, on the fair podcast, your integrity, one of the things I don't think, I don't know if you've seen it, but one of the things that I say on there, based on what you say about the process of you writing your um, biography, one of the things I said on there is that you're probably tougher on yourself than your critics are in terms of your self-reflection about your own course of your own life and the transitions you've made and why, than those folks are. You know what I mean? As you look at yourself introspective, so I, I respect the fact that you can do that. You can be reflective and introspective and look back and say, whoa, I don't like what I see. I, I, I just respect that, man. And so thank you. Just thank you for the opportunity to share to meet John and engage with you all. And I definitely hope to do it again. Thank you all so Great much. Great to meet Greg. Same here. Take fun. care, Greg. Thank you. Bye-bye. So uh, we're at the end of a year here. The year 2022 is going to be gone in a week's time. Uh, what would wow. be if you had five minutes or 10 minutes to summarize your thoughts, uh, you know, kind of the significant. Interesting observation. You know, the truth is both of us probably have this disease because we teach. For me, the year begins in September. So I think of years in, in that way, not really yeah. January. But if we were going to take 2022, I would say that during this year, I have more hope about the race debate than I did a year ago. And I think part of it is definitely self-centered reason that for this full year, I've been writing for the, the New York Times, and I'm still standing. You know, I wrote what I felt, stuff in there that, you know, people really don't like seeing in the pages of the Times, and I'm still here, and I am still standing. What I mean is that lots and lots of people, including lots and lots of Black people, get what I'm saying. I'm not being treated as a heretic where I can hear it, and of course, people are saying stuff, but frankly, I'm walking through the world being treated as a legitimate person. And I think that's a sign that there's a critical mass of people out there who understand that there's some stuff that needs work, but that this apocalyptic way that we talk about these things or this race debate where white people's job is to pretend that nonsense makes sense, I think people are sick of it. I think we saw a peak in 2020 and 2021. And I feel that in various ways, not just because of my own little experience. And there are disappointments, um, the kind of condescension that you were mentioning um, just now. Yes, that's there. But I feel better than I did to, uh, to uh, last Christmas. What, what about you? Do you uh, let me ask you this. Have much interaction with the New York Times community? You no. send in your pieces, but you don't go to the cocktail parties or... Post-COVID, there isn't as much of that. And I've... Um, They've had a couple of parties that I just couldn't go to for scheduling reasons. So, no, my life is not in the building the way it would be in the movie. If they did a movie of this, I do it all from home and I talk to two or three people who edit me. Um, so I'm not part of the culture. But then again, the people who I know seem to be OK with me being in the paper. And I don't get the feeling that there have been and maybe this week. But until this week, I don't think there have been calls for my head from any significant number of this week, I have said that Thomas Keon, the chancellor of Purdue University, North, I saw that 
should not lose his job on the basis of one stupid joke. And there's been lots of feedback, mostly I sense from Asian faculty and intellectuals and administrators saying that he should lose his job and that I just don't understand the nature of Asian people's history and the nature of discrimination. And, you know, my simple answer to all of that, which I'm not going to write, is I both understand the history of anti-Asian discrimination and think that that man should not be fired on the basis of one sentence that he uttered. And I think that all of us are capable of holding both of those things in our heads at the same time. For them to think that because I don't think he should be fired, I therefore don't understand the nature of discrimination as a 57-year-old person who's been a professional race commentator for a quarter of a century. The reason that they think that is because of our times. Talk about the signs of our times. The idea being, if somebody creates offense, they must be chased out as a heretic, no questions asked. So I'm imagining that there must be some people writing in letters saying, why is this person, you know, now I'm Brett Stevens this week. But this is the first time. And um, I think that it's a sign that things are switching back to the middle. I'm not saying that there's any revolution happening, but I, I'm feeling more sanguine. Well, I agree, uh, both with your judgment about this gentleman at Purdue, uh, Northwest Indiana Purdue or whatever it is. It wasn't the main Purdue campus. Right. Uh, and I mean, I actually looked up the video and he does affect a faux kind of Chinese speech for right. 15 seconds or something like that. Yeah. And it was in bad taste. It didn't, it didn't work, okay? Right. <laughs> Terrible taste. I cringed when I saw it, but the brother made it, the brother made a mistake. I mean, you know, do we have to shoot him? Right. You know, kind of thing like that. And the new idea is, yes, you shoot him. But no, no. Uh, and I said, I think I said it here the last time we talked, I think we're winning. I mean, I think I agree with your assessment overall that a lot of these Potemkin villages are being exposed for what they are and these empty suits are being, you know, trotted out and whatnot. Um, so yeah, 2022 for me was a very momentous year. I started my retirement from Brown university. It's a three year phase program, but I've initiated it. Um, you were we, honored uh, at an event, moved the podcast to, uh, the Manhattan Institute as a sponsor and I'm, you know, affiliated with them. Yeah, I, I'm I'm retiring from Brown. This is year one, and uh, first semester I didn't teach. Second semester I'll teach one seminar, and then in the next two years I'll do a big lecture course in the fall and a seminar in the spring, and then I'm out. One of my colleagues was saying, "Oh man, did you get a deal? They they should buy you out, you know, because you got tenure. You know, when you have tenure, you can stay forever. I can stay until I start drooling and." You know, can't stand up straight and uh, read my lecture notes and whatnot. I can stay and they still have to pay me the gazillion dollar mm -hmm. academic salary that they're paying me. And I said, nah, nah, I, I feel like I've been well compensated and I, I you know, I'm going to work half time. I'll take half pay. And I didn't even, even really try to get a deal. Mm -hmm. And he didn't understand that. He, he looked completely confused. He said, you didn't, you didn't bargain for a deal? I said, nah. Not what academia is about. No. I won prizes. I'm, I am the John Kenneth Galbraith Fellow of the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences this year, John. I didn't Congratulations. Know that. Yeah, I don't think you. I knew that. That's wonderful. Among other things. And that conference in my honor at the Economics Department at Brown, which you attended, God bless you, last spring was a, was a delightful thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a transition year for me, year five of my marriage to the lovely Lawan Lowry. We still celebrated our fifth anniversary and 
Things are still going, going strong. I wish she had heard Greg Thomas, though. I wish she had heard him mm. on my uh, integrity uh, issue because she and I are constantly butting heads on stuff. Anyway, mm-hmm. enough about me. I'm feeling so, Yeah. The election. That was a big thing. The hot thing um, for us coming is the affirmative action decision. I mean, oh, know, yeah. The decision coming in the spring, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to see not how that goes. It's rather clear how that's going to go, but what the response to it is going to be by the responsible parties. It's going to be interesting in terms of debate and events and commentary. And um, a lot of people are going to be very, very upset. And I think they're wrong. But from within their own heads, they're going to be very, very upset. And I feel sorry for them in that. The pain that that decision is going to cause a lot of people. And um, I just wonder if there's anything that you or I could say that would help alleviate it. Because they need not feel that pain. They, they, they really, they need, they will need to have their horizons broadened. Um, but a lot of people are going to be really torn up by what happens this time. There are actually two cases. There's the college admissions case, the Students for Fair Admissions against the Harvard and the University of North Carolina. And there's also this Alabama uh, voting uh, redistricting case where the issue is, do you have to draw a black majority district if you can? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the, the court is likely to decide in the predictably conservative direction on both cases. And people are going to assimilate that with the Dobbs case about abortion. And they're going to say this uh, illegitimate court that this illegitimate president appointed are undoing our rights and we have to fight back. And they're going to be looking to people like me and you to um, echo that argument. And we're going to disappoint them, aren't we? Well, you know, yeah. And on the voting issue, my stomach is where the quote unquote good people is, but my brain is not. I think that that whole kind of issue, even though I do think it's coming from bad actors, the jurisprudence itself is more complicated than a lot of people think. I actually learned a lot of that from um, the late Abigail Thernstrom. I was about to mention her. On this sort of thing. Her work on this still still applies. Her book and, is called Whose Votes Count? Mm-hmm. Whose Votes Count? 1987, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very prescient. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. It never got as much attention as the book that she yeah. wrote with her husband, American Black and White, that I think right. hit, hit the ground about 10 years after that. Right, um, exactly 10 years. Very, very important work. And these, it's just, it's not as simple as, well, you know, if you, if you stop, you know, take, looking at Alabama, then we're going to go back to 1963 and there is no justification whatsoever for any of the arguments that Alabama is making. That's just not... The way it goes. And if we're going to figure out where we're going to go from here, we ought to really be able to understand both sides of the argument. And this is the sort of thing where for a lot of people, there's an idea that there are there are no both sides. It's either Bull Connor or the you know NAACP Legal Defense Fund. No, there's some in-between arguments that we need to discuss. And I would hope we could contribute to that when that decision comes down. All right. Uh, we still have more work to do. So I'm going to call our bi-weekly to a close and uh, thank everybody this year, 2022, for your attention to The Glenn Show, me and John every other week, for your support 
uh, uh, you know, we encourage you to subscribe. We encourage non-paying subscribers to become paying subscribers. One of the things that you get when you become a paying subscriber is the ability to submit questions that John and I consider every month during our Q&A. Um, and uh, it's a ball. Uh, so, you know, join us. 